0: Today we're going to want to be in Revelation chapter 3. It's the last book of the Bible, so it's easy to find. Revelation chapter 3. We're cracking open the book of Revelation a little bit. The most frequently misunderstood book in the Bible. And today's study is going to probably fundamentally change the way you look at at least the first three chapters for the rest of your life. It's going to be very, very interesting. So if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, let me explain to you where it came from. The Apostle John, one of the original 12 disciples who preached Jesus uh, after the ascension of Jesus Christ, was eventually arrested by the Roman authorities for doing that. Fascinating study into history. They try multiple times unsuccessfully to execute him. Unsuccessfully, One of the stories is they take him into the Colosseum, put him in a cauldron of boiling oil to boil him alive. They can't kill him. So what they end up doing with John is they exile him onto the island of Patmos. It's a Greek island. Basically, at this time, there's nothing there. They put him there to basically forget about him, to isolate him, and to let him die solely over time. So while he is on the island of Patmos, he receives what is known as Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And I hesitate to even call it a vision because it's much more than vision. It's not a daydream. John literally sees the things that he writes down. Jesus comes to him and shows John what's going to happen between the time that John is living in and the end of the world, basically. And he says, write this down. And that's where we get the book of Revelation, And if you begin to read the book of Revelation, you're going to find that the flow sort of goes like this. Chapter 1 is devoted to revealing the resurrected Jesus. So the first thing John sees is Jesus resurrected, the Jesus resurrection. So chapters 2 and 3 continue, and they reveal what's known as the church age. More to come on that in a minute. And then from chapter 4 onward, it covers what happens after the church age. And the event that separates the church age from what comes after it is what we're going to be studying next week. It's going to be fascinating. You don't want to miss it. And that's the general roadmap of the book of Revelation. Big, big thing to take note of. If if you want to sound like a biblical rookie, just commit the rookie mistake of calling it Revelations. It's Revelation singular. Book of Revelations, no such book in the Bible. It's one big revelation, not Revelations. Everybody say, Revelation. All right, your Bible scholars, this is great. In the New Testament of the Bible, there are are many letters that are written from individuals to other individuals or churches. Uh, These are called epistles. These are not the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those aren't letters. Letters are things like Thessalonians, Corinthians, Philemon, Timothy. These are all letters written from different people, many of them from the Apostle Paul to other churches and other individuals. But there are actually seven epistles that most people miss. And in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, there are seven epistles, seven letters to seven churches authored by Jesus Christ himself, dictated directly to the Apostle John. Seven epistles written by Jesus himself. So it's worth reading. And this is what we're going to take a look at today. Jesus writes these seven letters to seven churches, and each of these letters has several applications. This is on your outline. You can see it right there. Each letter is to a local church. Archaeology has proved already that each of these seven churches actually existed at the time John writes Revelation. There are seven literal local churches at that time. Each of these letters is to all churches. It contains content that is profitable to all churches across all of history. Each of these letters is also to each of us as individuals. We're going to find at the end of each letter, we're instructed to take heed of what is in there. So there's personal application. And then finally, and most fascinatingly, in my opinion, each of these letters is also prophetic. You see, in their order, and only in their order, These seven letters lay out around 2,000 years of church history that would follow the time John writes it down. 2,000 years of church history from that time all the way up to now. And the amazing thing is if you move them in any other order, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work. And so I've put them there on your outline just for your own interest to see sort of the date range that each letter covers. So each letter covers a period in church history And it's Jesus speaking to the church of that specific time period. It's absolutely fascinating. The book of Acts covers about the first 30 years of the church after Jesus has left the earth. Chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation cover the next approximately 2,000 years of church history. And so there's a template that's used for the letter that each church receives. Every church has a specific name. It's the name of the city. But the name of the city tells you something about the characteristics of the church. There's something in the name. You'll also find that Jesus introduces himself with a different title to each church. Every title that he uses is going to reveal some of the issues of that church. Because when Jesus uses a title, it's something that church needs to be reminded of. About Jesus. Jesus is going to give each church a report card of sorts. He has commendations and he has concerns, and then he's going to end with an exhortation and encouragement to change. And then we finally end with an exhortation to the individual. He's going to challenge the individual to be an overcomer in the age that they're living in. So you can see them there listed on your outline, along with the time period each church applies to. And I wish I had time to delve into that. But basically, if we're going to do that, we need to spend one week on each of the seven churches just to get through chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. So what I put there is I put a link to a website. There's an excellent verse-by-verse study through the book of Revelation. If you're interested in doing that, you will understand the book of Revelation for the first time in your life. I highly recommend you consider making that your, your personal devotional. To give you an idea why I can't cover it, it takes 26 teachings to go through the whole book of Revelation so that's why I can't cover all that right now. But I can hopefully spark some curiosity in you. The last four churches of the seven all contain references to the appearing of Christ. And so what that tells us is that these churches actually continue all the way until the end of all things. The end times events. The last four churches all continue. They start at different points in history, but the last four all continue all the way up until the end times. And so today we're gonna look at the very last of the seven churches, the church that I would suggest to you we are living in the age of. It's the church of Laodicea. This is what Holman's Bible Dictionary says about the city of Laodicea at the time John is writing Revelation. It says, Laodicea was well known in the ancient world for its wealth. The extent of its wealth was illustrated by the fact that Laodicea was built without the financial help of Rome after the disastrous earthquake of AD 60. Laodicea earned its wealth in the textile industry, in the production of black wool, and in the banking industry. Laodicea was also known for its medical school, which concocted a spice nard for the treatment of ears and an eye salve. The major weakness of Laodicea was its lack of a water supply. The need was met by bringing water six miles north from Denizli through a system of stone pipes, another sign of Laodicea's incredible wealth. And this is a literal description of what the city of Laodicea was like at the time, but there's a massive prophetic application to all this that we're going to start digging into. In the original language, the word Laodicea is a compound word. It's two words merged together. This is on your outline. It's the word laos, which simply means people. It's where we get the English word laity from, and, and laity just means church folk, church people. You guys are laity. It's not an insult. You're just church people. That's what laos means, people. And then you have the word decay, which means right or justice or judgment, some sort of governance or ruling. And so when you put them together, they form the word laodicea, which simply means the rule of the people, the rule of the people. In one of the earlier seven letters to the seven churches, Jesus mentions a group called the Nicolaitans, and he says that he hates their deeds. And the Nicolaitans, what that word simply means is to rule over the people. So the problem with the Nicolaitans is this was a system where the leadership of the church was ruling the people with an iron fist and abusing them and crushing them. Here we have the opposite problem. We have the people ruling over the church, even over the church leadership, and we're going to find that that's not an ideal situation either. One of the things that most Bible scholars point to is how interesting it is that you and I live in the only era in history when a king doesn't rule every country. We sometimes forget just how new the idea of democracy is. It's a very, very new idea in the scheme of world history. And not even half the world is is democratic yet. And in terms of church history, this is also a very new idea. It's only in the last 100 to 150 years that democracy has come into the church, and we've begun to see situations where the people actually rule the church we actually have a rule of the people in many many churches and what happens in that context it's not unusual at all for a church to find itself without a pastor and so the people of that church will get together they will look for a pastor they will interview a pastor they will find a pastor they like and they will interview that pastor they will hire that pastor and that pastor becomes an employee of those people there's entire denominations where they'll form a search committee, and then you come in as a pastor with your best sermon, and you preach it and pretend that you're an incredibly wonderful person for 48 hours to try and convince them to hire you. And you candidate. And they basically are out there thinking, I like this or I don't like this. They're, they stop just short of holding up, you know, like sevens and sixes or tens during the message at each point. They don't do that, but they have multiple pastors come in. They find the one they like, and they hire that pastor. He's their employee. And if they don't like what he says, or don't like his tone, or his direction, or his ministry, they can fire him at a certain point. That's a fairly new thing, but that's very, very common in many, many churches. It's the rule of the laity. It's the in church. And here's what you need to know. You need to know that that is not God's idea. And if you go through the Old Testament, and look at any time the will of the people governed the country, it was always disastrous. It was disastrous. What you'll find in Scripture is God using specific individuals who care more about being obedient to God than being liked by the people God sends them to. Often you'll find that the people don't even like the person God decides to use. God has to show up and tell the people, listen, this is my guy. You should listen to him. And the person follows God even though he sometimes gets frustrated with the people because he's more scared of God than he is of his people. And I I would just suggest this to you. If there's one thing I always want from whatever church I'm in, I want to be in a church where the pastor is more scared of God than he is of me. I want a pastor who is more afraid of offending God than he is of offending me. Because I would rather be offended with the truth than have God be offended By my pastor withholding the truth. And that's what our goal is to do here. But this is the situation that the Laodicean church is in, the end times church. So let's jump in. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. It says this And to the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, you might want to underline Laodiceans, right. And now Jesus is going to give himself some specific titles that the church needs to hear. Remember, The titles he gives himself speak to the issues of that church. And he says, these things, says the, and you might want to underline, amen. The faithful and true, you'll want to underline witness. The beginning of the, and then you'll want to underline creation of God. The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. So what's the first title he gives himself? It's the amen Quite simply, the amen means firm, trustworthy, surely, so be it, verily. Very simply, the amen is Jesus saying that he is the absolute. He's saying, I am the absolute. I'm the absolute. We've talked about before how when Jesus would say something to a crowd or the disciples, he'd sometimes begin by saying, verily, verily, or surely, surely, or I assure you, The word there is actually amen. And as we've discussed before, Jesus is saying amen. He's saying you can take what I'm about to tell you to the bank. You can bet your life on this. There is no question that what I'm about to tell you is true. So Jesus is calling himself the amen. He's saying I am the absolute. I am the absolute. So why does Jesus feel, this is the question, that he needs to remind this last church that he is the absolute? Why does he feel the need to remind them that he is the absolute? What lies have they bought into? I want to suggest to you t- two main philosophies that have penetrated and permeated this last church. The first is the doctrine of pluralism. Pluralism. And what pluralism says is that uh, there are more than one, more than two kinds of ultimate realities. In other words, th- there could be multiple gods, multiple Different ways to get to God. And and who am I to say that my truth is better than your truth? There's more than one way to God. And Jesus steps in and says to this church, you need to be reminded that I'm the amen. I'm the absolute. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the amen. And if we're honest, there's probably some of us here today that believe that there's more than one way to God. And what I want to encourage you to do is just simply look at what the Bible says. Jesus says, I'm the absolute. I'm the only way. And throughout the Gospels, Jesus says things like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. As we just said, no man comes to the Father except through me. There's no other way. Secondly, I would suggest to you that this church has bought into relativism and Relativism is simply defined as this. The idea is ethical truths depend on the individuals and groups holding them. The idea is very simply this. Relativism says there is no absolute truth. Truth is what's true to you. Truth is not an absolute. It's not a science. Truth is whatever's true to you. Your truth is different to my truth. That's relativism. Everybody's opinion is just as valid as everybody else's. And the problem with relativism is you are allowed to invent your own truth and then claim it as truth. Just to be honest with you, I don't know if there's a clearer definition of self-deception, deceiving yourself, than inventing your own truth, and then consciously choosing to believe that it's true. It's a conscious decision to deceive yourself. And that's something that I would suggest has permeated through this last church And Jesus has to tell them, remember, I'm the amen. I'm the absolute. The second title he gives himself is the faithful and true witness. The faithful and true witness. And in the original language, the word witness is just the word martis, from which we get our English word martyr. We get our English word martyr. So what Jesus is reminding them of is he's saying, remember, I am the martyr. The martyr, uppercase M. So Jesus has to tell this church, do you understand what it cost me to bring you into my family? Do you understand what I had to go through to save you? I had to die. I had to become the martyr for you. That's what I had to do. In Mark 8.35, Jesus is so upfront about what it means to follow him. He says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. He's not just talking about literal death. What Jesus is saying, what the Bible says is it says, when you become a follower of Jesus, you were bought with a price. Your life no longer belongs to you. It belongs to God. That is the deal. You get the righteousness of God, his salvation, eternal life, all those things. And in return, he he wants you. He wants you. You become his. You belong to him. And so Jesus says, listen, if all you're trying to do is figure out a way to still own your own life, you're going to end up losing it. But if you'll give up your life to me, you'll end up saving it. He is totally upfront about that. But this Laodicean church doesn't want to hear about losing their life. They don't want to hear about any type of sacrifice. You know, a witness, a martyr is someone who loves Jesus so much that they live like him. And as a result of that, they sometimes get treated like him. That's what a witness is. 2 Timothy 3.12 says this in your Bibles. It says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution." Everyone, everyone who wants to live godly in Christ Jesus is going to go through hard times because of that choice. It's going to happen. Apparently this church, though, doesn't want to hear about the difficulties that come with being a follower of Jesus. They don't want to hear about sacrifice and perseverance and suffering and persecution. They don't want to hear about the blood of Jesus because that's just really awkward and messy. And even worse, when you talk about the blood of Jesus, you have to talk about sin because the only reason the blood of Jesus was spilled was to pay for our sin. And when you talk about my sin, it makes me feel bad. So I don't really like it when you talk about that. So let's just talk about something more positive Let's do a sermon on five reasons why God loves me just the way I am. Let's do that instead. That's what I want to hear. But don't talk to me about sacrifice. And can I tell you from personal experience, this is absolutely true today. I've been to seminars and conferences on church planning and church growth. And and the thing I hear over and over again at almost all these conferences is, people want to feel good about themselves. People go where they feel good about themselves. So only focus on positive things. You know, a a first-time guest to your church doesn't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to be told that they're at war with God. Good good grief. Do you you even want people to come to your church? And I love positive stuff, too. I love positive stuff. I'm, I'm not like some dredge of a person who only wants the heavy stuff. I love the positive stuff. I love being told that I'm wonderful. And there's so much positive stuff in our faith, but there's something even more important than all that stuff. And it's the whole truth. It's the whole truth. But we live in a time when many people, instead of hearing the whole truth, would rather knowingly choose to hear only the positive parts of the truth. So that they can say, well, what we're teaching is true because it is, it's just incomplete. And that is the most popular way to grow a big church in the world today. But sacrifice, talk about that, and you should do a church shrinking conference. Don't talk about sacrifice. You know, we, we live in a day when, if we, just in the context of church, if we talk to someone about serving once or twice a month, the average response is, you know, that, that is just way too much commitment for my life right now. There's way too much commitment. But if someone's in a, a rec sports team or someone's kid is in a, a sports team and that coach says, listen, here's the deal. We got two games on the weekend. We got two practices during the week. And if this team is falling behind the rest of the league, I might just call another practice. And you need to be good with that or you're off the team. And our response is, it sounds reasonable. Seems fair. I mean, nothing great is accomplished without commitment. My kids need to learn that. I get it. But we'd like you to serve once a month. Whoa whoa, man, I, 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 I can't see the future. I can't like commit to something that radical. I can't, can't, can't do that. You know, when Jesus says in his word, I want you to put me first in your finances and honor me with the tithe, we freak out and we say, that's too much commitment. All they want is my money. All they want is my money. But Visa comes along and says, hey, we got a great deal for you. It's an 18% interest rate. We go, man, that sounds like a good deal. Let's do that. Then I can buy things I can't afford and figure it out later. I'll just buy it in faith. We're all a person of faith when it comes to credit cards, right? We discover this wellspring of faith within us. How are you going to pay for that TV? I don't know. I just have faith. I have faith. 60 inches of high definition faith. I got it. So we, uh, we, we live in an age where, where many Christians like to church shop. And, and what they're looking for is they're looking for a church that makes them feel good has a style they like, and all the recreational programs they meet, uh, we stop just short of verbalizing it. Because if we verbalized it, it would be like, Hi, I'm Bob. I'm, I'm church shopping. Sell me. Sell me your church, you know? And they say, well, we have a very, very lively service. We have lots of positive, upbeat uh, songs and music and messages. And we have some fantastic programs throughout the week. We have a, an exercise group on Tuesdays at 7. Oh, that's nice. I love that. Tell me more, please. Yes, and we have a crochet group on Thursday. That's something for you. You're doing very well. You're, you're in my top three. We'll, we, we might see you in a month or so. And the attitude a lot of the time with church shopping is, is showing up and saying, what, what, what can this church do for me? What can this church do for me? And the last question a lot of people ask is, does this church teach the truth? Do they teach the Bible? Do they teach the whole counsel of God? Certainly don't ask questions like, Jesus, where, where do you want me to serve you? Where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to lay down my life for you and for your church? To Christians solely looking out for their own preference, Jesus has to say, I'm the Martis. That's who I am. It costs me everything to bring you salvation. That wasn't too much commitment for me. He has to remind them of that because the last days church doesn't want to hear about sacrifice doesn't want to hear about laying down their lives you know back in the 1800s there was a theologian named joseph seiss and in 1865 he wrote three volumes on the apocalypse called lectures on the apocalypse it's great to read to the kids as you're putting them down Anything on the apocalypse, really. <clears throat> it's dragons and all kinds of stuff. In, uh, in volume one, he writes about the Laodicean church because he, he had the same theology that, that we hold to, which is that the book of Revelation is also prophetic and it lays out these 2,000 years of church history. He believed this as well around 150 years ago. And in volume one of his lectures on the apocalypse, he wrote what he was beginning to see. But he said, we're not there yet. We're not at the Laodicean church, but it's coming, and I can see it coming in the distance. And this is what, in his opinion, after studying God's word, it was going to be like. And this is what he wrote in 1865. He said, it is Laodicean, conformed in everything to the popular judgment and will. The extreme opposite of Nicolaitan. Instead of a church of domineering clericals, it is the church of the domineering mob in which nothing may be safely preached except what the people are pleased to hear, in which the teachings of the pulpit are fashioned to the tastes of the pew, and the feelings of the individual override the enactments of legitimate authority. It is lukewarm Nothing decided, partly hot and partly cold, divided between Christ and the world, not willing to give up pretension and claim to the heavenly, and yet clinging close to the earthly, having too much conscience to cast off the name of Christ, and too much love for the world to take a firm and honest stand entirely on his side. Joseph Seiss described a time in the future when pastors won't ask, what do my people really need to hear? They'll ask, what do my people really want to hear? Pastors will begin with the felt needs of the congregation, and that will drive what is taught in the church. The Apostle Paul would say this in in 2 Timothy in the Bible. I like the way the New Living Translation says it. Paul writes, for a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. Modern church growth theory says that if you want to grow a church, you really shouldn't teach too much of the Bible because most people don't want to hear that. Teach on something like love and then throw in a few verses that support what you want to say about love. That's what people really want. You know, the key is to find subjects that people are interested in and then give the people what they want. So do a series on sex and watch your church grow. Do a series on being the best you that you can be and watch your church grow. You need to find out what people really want to talk about and then talk about it. It's not rocket science. Let their desires drive your teaching and your church will grow. Guaranteed. The Laodicean church points to a time when the pastor will look at the people and say, what what do you guys want to talk about? What are you feeling right now? What do, you, what do you want to hear? Tell me and we'll study that. Well, I've been feeling a bit down about myself. All right, let's do a series on positive self-image. Let's do that. And the theory quickly becomes this. If your church is growing and the people in your church are happy and excited, then whatever you're doing must be right. Whatever you're doing must be right. If you've got a bunch of people in your church, they love going to your church, then what you're doing must be right. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. As though people have never shown up for things that weren't godly before. Show up all the time for things that are ungodly. You know, a good illustration would be me telling you, you know, we've got five kids. And and Charlene and I decided we really want to take our meals to the next level. And so I had a thought, and my thought was who better to plan our meals than the majority of the people who are eating them. So what we've done is we've allowed our five children to come up with our menu. That's what we're doing. We're on day three of pizza and ice cream. And you know how I know it's working? Because the children are so happy. They are so happy. They they show up early for mealtime in our house. I don't know what's going on in your house, but in our house, kids are excited about mealtime. That's how I know we're doing something right. What would you think of me as a dad if I told you that? And what would you think of me as a pastor if I said, you know, I'm not going to teach you the whole of God's word. I'm not going to really teach the deep things. I'm not going to teach the difficult truths. We're we're just going to stick to the things that you most like to hear about. And then we'll all be happy. You know, it's a father's job to be a father. And it's a shepherd's job to be a shepherd. But that's not what's happening in the Laodicean church. And then Jesus goes on with his third and final title to this church. He says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. The beginning of the creation of God. The third thing Jesus has to remind this church is that he is the creator. He has to remind this church and only this church that he is the creator. The literal translation is that he is the chief of the creation of God. Do you realize you and I are living in the only period in church history when professing believers are no longer sure that it was actually God who created everything? We're in the only period in church history when people who call themselves Christians are openly questioning whether God really was the creator. So I wonder what the lie is that this church has bought into which has caused Jesus to need to remind them that he is the creator. Here's what you need to know. You need to know that as Christians, we believe that God created everything out of nothing. Okay? As Brian Regan says, I don't want to offend anybody, but here we go. Uh, Evolution holds that nothing created everything out of nothing. And I know that there's solutions for that, like the multiverse and things like that, but but quite frankly, the explanations for the origins of the universe become progressively preposterous the further back you go. God is, in fact, the most logical explanation for the existence of the universe. It really is, because no matter how far back you go, you have to account for the existence of whatever existed at the beginning. And the more I'm around it, the more I am convinced that the reason that people will not acknowledge God is that they simply do not want to acknowledge God. We know that no matter how far science gets, it will never explain the existence of something out of nothing. Never. It's an impossible problem. We all know that. But God is off the table. He's off the table. We're loony for believing in him. We're crazy, juvenile in our thinking, intellectual buffoons. But I want to suggest to you that Jesus looked ahead when he gave these words to the Apostle John and spoke to a time when Christians would seek to merge creationism with something else. And I want to suggest to you it's it's evolution because theistic evolution is rising in popularity. Theistic evolution, let me be blunt. Theistic evolution exists because there are Christians who don't want to sound stupid when they talk to people who aren't Christians. That's the truth. And I'm with you. I never go into a conversation thinking, I'd like to sound stupid. Never one time. I've done it plenty of times, but never intentionally. Never intentionally. Theistic evolution is just the idea that evolution is true, but God is the guy who got the ball rolling. That's theistic evolution. I, be, I believe God started it, but then things just sort of <clears throat> took a course of their own, basically. It all happened through Revelation. And there's something very, very interesting that I believe God built into his word because he knew that we would try to do that. In Genesis 1, let me just read to you from Genesis 1. It says this, it says, so God created the great sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, goes on and it says, so the evening and the morning were the fifth day. So on the fifth day of creation, God creates birds. Everybody tracking with me so far? That's what Genesis says. The fifth day, God creates birds. On the sixth day, Genesis 1 says, Then God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so, so the evening and the morning were the sixth day. On the sixth day, God creates land animals. You tracking with me? Fifth day, according to the word of God, he creates birds. Sixth day, he creates land animals. If you don't know this, evolution teaches that land animals greatly preceded winged animals. Evolution teaches that we didn't have birds of flight till creatures had evolved from the water onto the land, then to the air. So whether you are a young earth or an old earth person, whatever you think about that, it is undeniable that the order of creation in Genesis 1 is in conflict with evolution. You cannot merge the two. Because I would suggest you, Jesus looked ahead and he says, I know you guys are going to try to do this. So let me just make it real clear. They cannot be harmonized. They can't be harmonized. Whether you're younger or older, the order is different. You can't marry the two unless, unless, Unless what? You're willing to say that you don't believe that the word of God is completely true. And that's the trap, isn't it? You see, I I believe that behind the scenes in the spiritual world, everything that's going on is not really about science and Christian versus modern theory. What's behind everything is Satan's attempt to make you believe that you cannot trust the word of God because we should all be reasonable and rational enough to say that if we begin to take the stance, you know what, Genesis, Bible's true, but Genesis might be a little bit off in some of the details. Then what about the rest of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? Is that, is that a little bit little bit off? Then what about the rest of the Old Testament that's built on the Torah? Is that, is that a little bit off? And what, what about Jesus? What about the gospel? You'll realize very quickly You cannot come to the position that the parts in the Bible that are socially embarrassing in our culture, those are the parts that aren't true. But everything else, you can take it to the bank. You're fooling yourself. You're deceiving yourself now. At some point, Jesus says, you have to choose who you believe. You have to choose who you believe. And just by the way, young earth, old earth, separate issue to evolution versus creationism. Separate issue. They're not married together. But God says, you've got to choose. Am I the creator or not? Did I lie in my word or not? You've got to choose. He says, remember, I'm the creator. And this is so important. Don't miss this. Jesus thinks this is a big enough deal that he mentions it specifically in one of his three titles to the last church. He thinks it's a big deal. He says, remember, I'm the creator. Don't forget that. You know, like like you, I want everyone to think I'm loving and intelligent. I do. And I believe we're living in this last church age. And, And I know, and you know this already, we're already facing issues in our society, in our culture, in our social circles, where what we believe as Christians, what the word of God says, is very much in conflict with the values of our society in certain areas. And I watch in pain and anguish as Christians fumble their way awkwardly through conversations because what they're looking for is a way to say they believe God's word, but I still want you to think I'm loving and intelligent. Christian, I, I need to tell you there will not always be that option. And, and as a believer, we need to steal our resolve and simply say, I, I would rather offend another person than offend God. Because there's not always going to be a perfect answer for every question where we get to look loving and intelligent. Sometimes we're not going to be received that way. You know, Jesus said this. He said, beware when all men speak well of you. He said, beware when everybody loves you. Because it probably means you've compromised. So just prepare yourself for that. I don't want to make you feel down. I'm not trying to shrink my church. But I do want to tell you the truth. I do want to tell you the truth. And so to summarize, Jesus has to remind them that he is the absolute, he's the martyr, and he's the creator. He goes on and he shares a report card with him, and he says this in verse 15. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, underline lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's a report card. I thank God I never got that on any report card I had in school. Jeff thinks he is rich and wealthy and has need of nothing. But he is wretched, poor, blind, and naked. Let's go back to to verse 15. Verse 15, you'll notice cold is good, right? Cold is good. It's refreshing. It's useful. Glass of water on a hot day. Hot is good because hot is what we use to make coffee. And coffee is good. Key point of theology. No room for disagreement. Leave my church if you disagree, okay? Lukewarm is good for nothing. Lukewarm is good for nothing. Lukewarm shower. Mm. Lukewarm glass of water. Mm. It's just really good for nothing. And that's Jesus's criticism of this church. He says, you guys, spiritually, you're lukewarm. You're lukewarm. And it's interesting to note that in Laodicea at the time, the water was literally lukewarm. Because when we think of water pipes, we think of enclosed insulated pipes that travel underground. These were actually open air aqueducts that carried the water six miles, they carried the water so far that by the time it reached Laodicea, the water had adjusted its temperature to almost match the ambient temperature of the world around it. And that's the picture that Jesus wants us to have of this church. This last days church is a church that has been so influenced by the world around it that it's practically indistinguishable from it. The Bible also says things like, what good is salt when it loses its saltiness? It says we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. The idea is we're supposed to stick out as shining for Jesus. He says, but when salt isn't salty, when, when you're just the same as everything else, what, what are you good for? And Jesus pretty clearly says it's good for nothing. When you're just the same temperature as the world around you, you're not good for anything is what Jesus says to this church. You know, in our society, statistically, we would consider a regular church attender as someone who comes to church once every six weeks. And that person who comes to church once every six weeks when asked, do you go to church, would say, of course I go to church. This is my church. New Hope is my church. How often do you go? Once every six weeks. I know, pretty committed. But that's the norm. That's an average church attender in our culture. Hot? cold? Lukewarm? In verse 16, Jesus goes on and he shares his response to this lukewarm church. (laughs) One of the best verses in all of scripture. The idea behind the word vomit, or whatever your Bible says, is really to spew. And at this point, I need to get into the science of vomiting for you. You see, I I have five kids, and my wife and I would consider ourselves somewhat of an authority on this subject. Um... And the difference between vomit and spew is related to the issue of distance, okay? When one vomits, you are at risk of getting your vomit on yourself. When one spews, the dearly loved people around you are in danger of being vomited upon. The difference is distance. The person who spews is at very little risk of actually getting anything on them. It's an issue of distance. The original word the Bible uses is the word emeo, and the word emeo is one of these words that's designed to be said like the action actually sounds. So it's not designed to be said emeo, it's designed to be said emeo, like that, so that everyone understands, oh, that's vomiting, but with some distance, some distance. I can hear that, similar to the sound of a monster leaving a person's body, really, So, Jesus' point here is very, very simple. All that to make this point being lukewarm is not acceptable. It is not acceptable. And you're going to see this become more clear as we study through this. In the Bible, there is no lukewarm Christian. There is no lukewarm Christian. We're going to find that out in a few minutes. You're either saved and you're following Jesus, or you're not. But we're the ones who invented the idea that there's this middle position you can be in where you're saved, but it really makes no difference in the way you live your life. Those are the people Jesus is speaking to here. He's saying, I vomit you out of my mouth. Does that sound like those guys are cool with Jesus? Does it sound like Jesus is cool with them? That's our own idea that there can be this middle position. You know, when you're a lukewarm Christian, here's the tragedy. You cannot even see your own spiritual condition. You've deceived yourself, you're self-deceived. And to me, this is one of the most terrifying warnings in all of scripture. To the lukewarm, self-deceived Christian, to the lukewarm, self-deceived church, Jesus says, you say, I'm rich, have become wealthy, I, I have need of nothing, I got everything I need, I'm good. You don't know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, can't even see it, and naked. So write this on your outline. Here's the surprise for the last church. They thought they were okay. They thought they were okay. We're going to see that this church is very much into self-fulfillment. They found a way to make church all about them instead of all about Jesus. This church doesn't want to hear about Jesus having to die on the cross and being a martyr. No, they want the things that make them feel good something to help them have a happier life. They want they want life coaching. They want the Oprah show when they come to church. T- tell me about how to have better relationships, but for the love of God, please, please don't talk to me about putting God first and living a life of holiness. I really don't want to hear about that. I-, I want you to know that I believe God wants to bless you. He wants you to prosper. He wants you to be healthy. But there are some churches and some preachers who will only ever talk about those things and ignore the other side. That he wants you to become like his son, Jesus. He wants you to become like Jesus even more than he wants your life to be easy. He wants you to become like Jesus. But that doesn't sell a lot of books. You know, the Bible says we're gonna have trouble in this life because this is not heaven. This is not heaven. It's very clear, right? this on your outline, that this church is into wealth. They're into wealth. Because they associated their wealth with needing nothing. It was their security, and it made them blind to their spiritual condition. It, it also made them not care about any other believers. As long as they were okay, everything is okay, right? Everything's okay. Somehow this church has forgotten that the purpose of their faith is to accomplish God's purposes not their purposes. They've assumed that God has come along to help them fulfill their agenda. Isn't this great? Now I can accomplish everything I wanted to accomplish in my life because God's on my side to help me fulfill all my dreams. They've forgotten about God's agenda. You know, Jesus is so gracious because his words have the power to open up our eyes, even when we're blind. So if you're hearing this and saying, my my God, what do I do? What do I do? That's me. Jesus gives us the solution in verse 18. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments, underline white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with self, that you may see. What Jesus is trying to tell him, he's trying to say, I'm the only person that has riches, that has gold, that's been refined in the fire. The idea is, I'm the only person who can offer you riches that will make it through what's about to come in the future. Everything else is going to burn with the world one day. He says, it's all going to burn one day. But the riches that I'm offering you will make it. They'll make it through the fire. He says, they need I self because they can't even see, they can't even recognize how blind they are. And then when it talks about white garments, and you look throughout the Bible, I'm gonna suggest to you that the white garments are implying a need for conversion, a need for conversion. When the Bible talks about the bride of Christ and people in heaven and, and salvation in the Old Testament, there's always a reference to being clothed in white garments. We see it in places like Isaiah where Isaiah says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And apparently this robe of righteousness is lacking in this last church, and I want to suggest to you, Jesus is saying that true conversion is lacking in this last church. The church is not characterized by being truly converted. Being truly converted means you've been changed from one thing to something different. It doesn't mean you've become perfect, but it means the orientation of your life has changed. You used to be at the middle. Now God is at the middle. He's the center. Everything revolves around him. But God says there's there's not really been any real conversion that's taken place for most people in this church. In Matthew 7, another sobering verse, Matthew 7, Jesus says this. He says, many will say to me in that day, the last day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me you who practice lawlessness. And I want you to notice that that's not talking about people who backslide. It's not talking about people who started off strong with God and then slid back and failed a little bit. Because he says, he says, I never knew you. I never knew you. You thought you were converted, but what happened is you just really raised your hand in church and then you went on living your life the same. You were always the center of your life. Nothing ever really changed. The first word there when Jesus says many will say to me in that day can also be translated as mostly. Mostly. And I believe that's true. I'm going to show you why in a minute. But mostly on that day people will say to me, God, I did all this stuff in your name. In your name. Went to church every six weeks. Jesus says, I didn't know you. And the point's not to scare us. What Jesus is trying to get us to do is to evaluate whether we're really saved or not. Or we just like the idea of heaven, but we're still in the middle of our own universe. We're still the center of our existence. Are you in this because you're so overwhelmed by what Jesus has done for you that every single day you'll do whatever it takes to follow him because you just can't get over what he went through to save you because you view your life as belonging to him the most profoundly tragic thing about it is the people who need to see this can't most times because they're blind. Now Jesus calls us to respond in verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. He's saying, listen, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm telling you this because I love you. If I didn't care about you, I'd just let you die not knowing me, but I care about you, so I'm telling you. And he says the solution right here, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. As a whole, this is what's going to happen to the last days church. This is a prophecy. This is going to happen. There's no point us throwing a revival, an anti-Laodicean church revival. This is gonna happen. It's prophecy. It's the word of God. But, But please, I'm begging you. Don't you be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Don't you be the fulfillment of this prophecy. Don't you be the one who thinks they're okay. But who is still running your own life? And is really blind and naked. No idea of your own condition. It's a picture of the last church, but it doesn't have to be the picture of you. So, what do you need to do? Notice what Jesus says. Write this down. You need to be zealous. Be zealous. Being zealous just means be passionate, be all in, be on fire for Jesus. Is your life recognized as being on fire for Jesus? And I don't mean making a bunch of noise. I don't mean being the one guy in worship who runs laps around the room. I'm not talking about that when I say be on fire for Jesus. What I mean is that everybody who knows you knows Jesus is the center of your life. He's the center of your life. Does that describe you? What's your commitment like to Jesus' church, to God's word, to prayer, I'm not, again, I'm not trying to promote legalism saying if you get to a certain number, you're committed. I'm just asking, is it the center of your life? Is it your desire to live for Jesus? And then secondly, he says, repent. He says, repent, make a change, reconsider, think differently, follow the lead of the Holy Spirit and make the changes you need to make in your life. We're almost done. we just got a, a few more things that are so important. In verse 20, Jesus tells us that he's at the door knocking. And if you read the other six letters to the other six churches, Jesus is always in their midst. He's among them. This last church, Jesus isn't even in their midst. He's at the door knocking, trying to get in. But notice the language here. In all the other letters, Jesus speaks to the church collectively. But in verse 20, the last church, Laodicean church, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any one hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. I believe that what the text is telling us is that Jesus is appealing to individuals in this period in church history. He's saying, you might be living in this age, but I'm calling out to you as one person, as an individual. I'm inviting you to accept my invitation. If you, as an individual, do that, I'll come into your life. I'll come into your life. You don't have to be a part of what Jesus says to that church. There'll be individuals who open their heart to God, and Jesus says, if you'll invite me in, I'll come in. I like Young's literal translation of this verse. It says, he who is, present tense, overcoming. He who is overcoming, I will give to him to sit with me in my throne, as I also did overcome and did sit down with my father in his throne. The idea and the picture is not someone whose life is perfect. The idea is someone whose life is devoted to God, and they're becoming more like Jesus. They're overcoming. They're in the act of it. The present tense also implies that there are people in this place of overcoming when Jesus comes to get them. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I believe that there are times for all of us when we just need to stop and examine our lives and ask the question, is Jesus at the center? If we've drifted, we need to come back. But specifically today, the question I want to ask is to ask yourself, has Jesus ever been at the center? Has he ever been at the center? If you've drifted, come back. But if he's never been, I need you to know Hear this from me. This is the truth of the word of God. There are only followers of Jesus and people who don't follow Jesus. There is no person, the Bible says, who is a Christian but doesn't follow Jesus, but doesn't make him the center of their life. That category doesn't exist. You're either following Jesus, belonging to him, or you're not. We can't come up with a happy medium where we get all the benefits of living selfishly, and then all the benefits of following God later on when we want them. It's a heavy question, but it's the most important question we could ask today. We are in the last church of the church age. I hope you're seeing that as we've studied it. We want to make sure that we're the individuals who answer that knock at the door. Jesus ends with this, verse 22. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, listen, listen. I'm telling it to you straight.